indeed, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is uh, the least recognized, maybe least understood, person of uh, the Trinity. He so often comes a poor third after the Father and the Son that hopefully we all know uh, a little bit better. Reduced all too often or easily in our thinking to nothing more than an impersonal force. The traditional term uh, used, and uh, Margaret threatened to recite that passage in the Authorised, which comes to memory a lot easier for her than the NIV. The traditional rendering of Holy Ghost does nothing, I don't know about you, but does nothing to help me uh, warm to him. Uh, The thought of the Holy Ghost coming uh, reminds me of those childhood emotions of watching Scooby-Doo or hiding behind the city for Doctor Who. And so we kind of give him this this distance because he sounds uh, strange, scary, uncomfortable. And I guess that, uh, amongst other things, is one of the many reasons why we least, uh, we are are less familiar with him than we are with the Father and the Son. There's a lot of ignorance, for example, around the the Holy Spirit. At least the Father and the Son feel more real and tangible. They're they're terms that we relate to better in our physical uh, world, where the Holy Spirit's rather more woolly otherworldly. Then there's all the insecurities that we have uh, about the Holy Spirit because we can't put him in a box perhaps like we think we can do with God. There's a sense in which if you put the Holy Spirit somewhere he won't stay there, he'll do his own thing. And uh, the control freaks that we are, we would rather not have uh, uh, someone who does their own thing accessing those deeper areas of our lives. And then there's all the information that we get about the Holy Spirit, the strange things that other churches do that uh, spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we associate the Holy Spirit with uh, the swinging from the chandeliers kind of uh, worship that we will put to one side by saying, oh, well, it doesn't have the real depth that we'd like our worship to have. And so we make judgments on other churches and other situations and keep it all as a distance. Let's leave him to one side because it's easier that way. Oh, not to mention all that business about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which people get in such a flap about and sometimes get upset and hurt about. Why don't we just leave him to one side? Well, I guess we could, if it wasn't that Jesus so clearly and and with such emphasis spent these final hours with his disciples, reminding them all about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a constant running theme through these several hours of conversation that we're looking at together. We look at it here, it comes again in in chapter 15, it comes again in chapter 16. By implication, it comes again in chapter 17. The Holy Spirit is like a a, a running running commentary through these uh, verses. Why? Well, Jesus explains why a little later in chapter 16. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The counsellor, quite literally the helper, someone who comes alongside to help. The disciples would never have dreamt of doing anything without Jesus alongside them. One of the verses that Heather shared with us last Sunday evening was that time when Jesus approached the disciples walking on the water. The disciples were in the boat. And uh, and Peter says to Jesus, if it's you, 
If it's you, I'll get out of the boat and come and walk on the water. But if it's not you, I'll forget it. There's no point. I know I can only do that kind of stuff if it's you. And Jesus said, well, it is me. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. They knew, they were acutely aware, these disciples, that they were just fishermen, country bumpkins from Galilee, tax collectors, those on the edge of society, those that other people would have naturally turned away from. They were all too aware of who they were. And yet Jesus said to them, hey, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. What? We can't do this. The disciples knew they couldn't do it. But with Jesus, with Jesus they discovered they could do what humanly they just knew they could never do. And after Jesus sent them out, they came legging it back to Jesus and said, this is amazing, it works. Why? Because they were with Jesus. They couldn't possibly go out and preach. They couldn't possibly heal. They couldn't possibly offer deliverance. They knew it was all Jesus. But now he was leaving. And the thought of him leaving would return their lives to the nothingness from which they felt they had come. There was nothing about the last three years that they could have done on their own. And now without him, it'll be all over. Back to the way it was. But Jesus says, no. No, it's not going to be all over. And you're not going to return to the way that it was. Another helper, one who is like me, will now come alongside you just as I have been alongside you for these three years. Just as I came alongside, lifted your life out of mediocrity in Galilee and gave you a mission and a purpose in the world, so this other one, this other self of mine, language begins to fail us. This other one who is the same as me will come alongside, lift you up, lift your life out of mediocrity, give you a, a purpose to live for and a reason to be part of God's kingdom purpose. And Jesus knows that if they don't understand this, if they miss this all-important moment, if they marginalize the Holy Spirit like the church has so easily done in its history, he knows they will be miserable. They will live miserable Christian lives because their lives will always be under par. They will be miserable because they will lack the physical, emotional and spiritual resource to live the kind of way that Jesus had asked them. They'll be miserable because they know, and Jesus knew, they just couldn't do it by themselves. So Jesus is saying a few things. He's saying the Holy Spirit is good. The Holy Spirit is good for you. And, and as we hear that, some of us are not comfortable with that. We've instinctively thought that the Holy Spirit is not altogether good for us. It is good that I go, says Jesus, because you really need the other one coming alongside the help. It's necessary. You cannot do it by yourself. And it's for everyone. The Holy Spirit came when they were all together. All together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. It wasn't for a few of them who would blaze a trail. It was for all of them if they were going to live this Jesus kind of life. In fact, Paul commenting later says, if you haven't got the Spirit of Christ, well, you're, you're not even a Christian. A good verse for the Jehovah Witnesses. Let's be clear. The Holy Spirit is God. The third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have the same character, they have the same authority, they are essentially 
the same person. You say, I don't understand that. You're using words that don't make sense. Absolutely right. I haven't got words to describe God. If I could describe God, then I would be God and he wouldn't be. Now there's a thought. It is not unsurprising that there are aspects about God that we do not understand, that we cannot get our words around, that do not make sense to our puny little minds. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, equal to Jesus and to the Father, and as the disciples needed Jesus alongside. We need the Holy Spirit alongside, or it will all end in tears. So here in these last hours, Jesus says to them, the Holy Spirit, it's for your good, it's necessary, it's for everyone. And he begins to unpack to his disciples why they cannot miss what he is saying. Firstly, the Holy Spirit brings power for service. Power for service. We have this rather arrogant, I suppose, notion that if we want to serve God, we can. And if we choose not to serve God, then we don't. And we know that we're sinful, fallen people, so sometimes in my sinfulness, I simply decide I'm not going to serve God, and you do too. But if I wanted to, then I could. We may as well face the truth now, because we'll be forced to face it in the next chapter of our series. The truth is, you cannot serve God even if you choose to. You know that, don't you? You can't. God's very clear. You cannot choose to serve him by yourself. Without me, Jesus will say, uh, at the beginning of chapter 15, you can do nothing. And it's exactly the same here. We can't serve God by ourselves, even if we want to. We can't serve God in the church by ourselves, even if we want to. We can't serve him in our homes or, or where we're employed. We cannot do it by ourselves. If anyone could have served God on their own terms, then Jesus could have, don't you think? But what do we read about his life and his ministry? Right at the very beginning, Jesus returned to Galilee to start what God had called him to do in the power of the Spirit. The Son of God, in his humanity, said, I cannot possibly do this for God without the Spirit enabling, without the Spirit alongside. It's why in the Gospels when Jesus is baptized, marking the beginning of his ministry, we see the dove coming down. He needs the Spirit in his humanity to serve God in his day. Jesus was utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Surely if anyone could have gone alone, he could have done it. So Jesus knew. He knew out of his own experience as a man that this kind of life the disciples were being called to live would only be possible with the Holy Spirit alongside. No wonder Jesus said at the end of his ministry, whatever you do, chaps, wait. Wait. Whatever you do, wait. Don't try and do this serving God stuff until the Spirit has come, because you can't. For goodness sake, wait. too easy to serve God without waiting, isn't it? It's too easy to go it alone. It's too easy to say, hey, I'll do this by myself. 
and heaven makes a judgment on our service. To be told what to do but to have no power to do it is miserable, debilitating, frustrating, fruitless. And sometimes that describes mine and maybe your Christian life. It's not that we don't put the effort in. Sometimes it seems like all we're doing is putting the effort in. But it's just so overwhelming. It's just too much. The bar too high. Expectations from heaven too great. And we feel miserable because too often and for too long, we just can't reach where we know we should be. Anyone else ever been like that? Thank you. (laughs) One of you. I'll keep going for the one. The rest of them are fibbing. Let's face it, how can we carry on this Jesus ministry by ourselves? You see, the disciples knew that they couldn't. Only a few minutes earlier, Jesus had offered Judas the bread from the meal. In their culture, offering Judas the bread was so much more than saying, hey, have a Big Mac. It was about acceptance. It was about love. It was about belonging. Jesus who knew exactly what Judas was about. Jesus who knew that before the bread would hit his stomach, he would already be out into the night, still gave him the bread, still looked him in the eye, still loved him. Could you do that? Remember all he said about turning the other cheek. When someone whacks you, let them have another go. Could you do that? Remember how he hanged out with the lepers, the social outcasts. How he was very happy to be identified with sinners, those unkempt and unclean. And and he, he never tried to justify himself. He never tried to say, oh, I'm only there to help them. He just took it on the chin. Hey, you're a friend of sinners, aren't you? Oh, that, that's about the deal, really. He was happy. Never forcing his own longing to be recognized on others. Hey, could we do that? What about all those times he challenged the injustices of the day like he did? Challenged the status quo like he did? Spoke words of prophecy and power against the establishment? Could we do that? And then those power encounters. Healing the sick, authority over demons, pulling down demonic strongholds. Hey, could we do that? But that's what he's asking us. That's what he's asking us. That's what he was asking of those disciples. Go and keep going with what I have begun. The kingdom of God is near. Go take this kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Go do this stuff, pushing back the darkness, ushering in God's new age. That's what I want you to do. Go do it. Hey, can you do that? No. Can I do that? Not a chance. Not a chance. And so because I can't do that, and because you can't do that, it's so easy for us to fall into two errors. We know that we can't possibly achieve what Jesus is asking of us by ourselves. And so because we can't achieve it, we sometimes fall into the temptation of lowering our standards. We reduce the Christian life to something less than Jesus intended. In fact, it's all too easy that instead of regarding the Christian life as this radical commitment to God's new way, we turn it into church-going and small group study. 
And we're so thrilled by our own commitment to get to church on Sunday and to be part of a small group. And we assume that the whole of heaven is applauding us for getting to church and joining our small group when actually heaven is saying, will you be part of this Jesus movement? Will you be part of this new way come to earth from heaven? Confronting darkness, ushering in God's new day. And so we lower our standards and we make it a lot easier and we say, okay, I'll turn it into going to church because I can do that and I'll turn it into my small group commitment because I can do that. And heaven says, hey, it's so much more. And then maybe we don't do that because we, we know that, that that doesn't seem quite right, but we've still got this ache inside of us because the standard is up here and, and we're down here somewhere and we're not sure what to do. So, so simply we, we find ourselves just frustrated with failure. Frustrated, even fearful in our service of God. Must try harder, ringing in our ears, but knowing that somehow we'll never quite make it. Neither are great places to be, are they? Oh, you're quiet. Hello. Neither are great places. Let's not reduce God's kingdom living to something it was never meant to be. And, and, and please, heaven, let's not turn it into a religion. Let's never do that. But let's not leave it up there, knowing that we're here. And live in this fearful fruitlessness, either. So what's the answer? Well, we read the context. That's what the, the Holy Spirit is coming to get alongside us to help us do what the disciples did. They knew they couldn't do it by themselves, but they could do it with Jesus. Now Jesus is going, they're going to need another helper, another one just like Jesus to be alongside them, to make it happen day in, day out, because in their humanity they just can't. And so we read, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. Wow. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Because I'm going to the Father. What's significant about him going to the Father? When he goes to the Father, then the Spirit can come. Because the Spirit is coming, I tell you the truth, you will do what I've been doing, those of you with faith. And because the Spirit has come, you will do greater things because of your faith. I'd settle for the same things, wouldn't you? Let's not be greedy. Would you settle for the same things? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I think we instantly think of the miracles because that's what's mentioned in the preceding verse. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with the miracles. We worship a miraculous, supernatural God. You would expect God's people to be miraculous and supernatural, wouldn't you? I'm sure it means that. But maybe so much more. Because I think about the life of Jesus, his miracles are one thing, but then there are other parts of his life that are in some ways to me even more miraculous. Isn't it totally miraculous that a totally sinless God from heaven should say to the woman dragged into the courtyard, uh, 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 caught in adultery, hey, your sins are forgiven. Isn't it utterly miraculous that the Son of God, on mission to save the earth, should stoop down and gather children onto his knee? Isn't that amazing? In a society that is much more male-dominated and, much, uh, 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 and with a far greater, stronger hierarchical structure than ours, a man getting on his knees to gather the children. Hey, Jesus, you're too busy for that. You've come to save the world. This is saving the world. Isn't it miraculous the way he sliced through 
every barrier of culture. He ate with the sinners and he touched the lepers and he was numbered among the outcasts. All of those are miraculous things for me. Stuff you and I so caught up in our chains find it almost impossible to do. But he says, I tell you the truth. Faith in me, you'll do these things. You'll do these things. Why? Because I'm going to the Father and the Spirit is coming. But wait until you receive that power. Then go and be my witnesses. Take this kingdom to the ends of the earth. So what are the greater works just out of, uh, out of interest? I mean, uh, something to aspire to. Maybe we'll move on to them next week. What are the greater works that, that we're being called to? Well, it's, it's hard to understand what this might mean. The disciples aren't on record as doing anything greater than Jesus, except for one thing. Jesus' life was all about bringing in God's kingdom, which meant rescuing lost people. Then when we see the mission of the church explode and the story talked about in the Acts of the Apostles, the focus is not so much about the miracles that the church was involved in, and there were some great miracles they were involved in. The focus is always about, at the end of each period of activity, how the Lord was adding to their number. Our lost people were being saved. And maybe that's what it means. I tell you the truth, you'll do all the stuff that I've been doing, that I've got going, but you as you go in my name, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will achieve so much more, so many more lost people, so many more people freed from darkness, so many more people finding the freedom there is in Christ, so many more people are, are rescued from the jaws of hell into an eternal heaven. Hallelujah. His mission, the disciples' mission, your mission and mine, finds its fulfillment in people coming to Christ. What greater work is there than rescuing souls for Jesus? But it comes through people who are prepared to confront the darkness, people who are prepared to live this new kingdom life. How can you do that? You can't possibly do that without the one who comes alongside to help. Jesus says it's simple, you need him. And I guess the disciples are in a different place to us because they knew that if Jesus was going, they really would need him. It's far too easy to think we'll go it alone. We need him. So the Holy Spirit brings power for service. And secondly, the Holy Spirit brings intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. Hugely reassuring for the disciples that were about to lose Jesus is that they will not be left as orphans, but he will come to them. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, verse 20, and on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. To understand the strength of these words, we need to go right back to the beginning, right back to the beginning of the Bible, and right back at the beginning, uh, it says that in the beginning, God, what did God do? He created the heavens and uh, the earth. And then if you read through the account in Genesis, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And do you notice that whenever God says it, it happens? God said, God said, God said. And so the creation was forming, such is the power of his word. And then you get down to verse 26, and again, we read God said. God said, let us make man in, sorry, it should say, our image. Let us, let us. 
There was only God in the beginning. What does that mean? It's the first hint of the Trinity. It's the first hint that there was something more to God than just as we would understand God in the singular. It's the first hint that at the heart of God is a relationship. And then we, would, we were to get glimpses of it through the Old Testament. There would be a number of times, and we haven't got uh, time to look at them this morning, but a number of, uh, of moments when there were just these little hints that there was something more to God, obviously, than meets the eye. And then, Jesus. And John describes Jesus like this, mimicking the very verses from the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning was... And everyone expects it to read God, because they knew their Old Testament. And John says, no, let's learn something new today. Let's push back our knowledge as human beings about Creator God. Because in the beginning, yes, was God, that's true. But in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, that doesn't make sense? No, things about God don't make sense. If they did, we'd be God and He wouldn't be. So we begin to understand there's a father, and as you read through John chapter 1, there's a son. There's a son that always was, that was part of creation, that was there with God in the beginning. And so Jesus is saying, there's another one. Someone else like us, who is part of us, part of God, the Spirit. And so we now know what there were only hints of way back then, that God exists in perfect relationship with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfectly unbroken, uncluttered, totally together relationship. That's the relationship that lies at the heart of the universe. It's the relationship out of which creation came forth. It's the relationship out of which everything exists and has its being. Why do you and I, as people made in God's image, require relationships to survive? Because God always has been in relationship with himself. A perfect relationship. But then let's just reread these words that Jesus was saying to his disciples that night. With all that in mind, look at it again with me. Verse 20. On that day, what day is that? That's the day the Spirit comes. On that day, you will realize You'll realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is nothing less than an invitation from God for you and me to enter into the very depths of relationship with God, to enter into that intimate place of the Trinity. That incredible relationship that has always existed, that lies at the heart of the universe, in which we live and move and have our being, you, me, invited to join. Here was an invitation that would take their relationship with Jesus to a totally new level. A level that the beloved disciple that had leant on Jesus' breast, even he could not contemplate. These are the most staggering words, or at least one of the most staggering words in the whole of the Bible. The depth of intimacy to which Heavenly Father invites you and me to share. If last week you were amazed that God invites you into his home, be utterly astounded that he invites you into his heart. 
People don't normally invite us into their hearts, do they? Just think about it with me for a moment. We have lots of people that come into our home, and maybe you do too. And uh, 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 they come into sort of the communal parts of your home, the, the parts of your home where you welcome people and, uh, and make people hopefully feel as if they are at home. But then there are also parts of your home, I suspect, where you don't generally invite people, where people aren't generally welcome because the socks are still on the floor and the towel is still all creased up. You know that part of your home? You got a part like that? Yes, I know. You can't invite them into that part of your home because they might open that cupboard where everything will fall out. And so there are parts of your home where generally you do not invite people. And they'd have to be quite special people You have to feel quite sort of, you know, we're bonding here to let them come into that part of your home. And then there's another part of your home that is not a geographical place, but it's the part of your home that involves the intimacy of your family. That that set of relationships that happens once the door is closed and nobody else is around and nobody else is listening. There is a more personal space still in your home. The space where you relate to those you love the most. God says, come right into this deepest place. Come not just into my home, all the bits I generally don't show other people, but come right into the personal space within our home. Come right into the intimate part of heaven. And I I can't get the words to express that really. Into that intimate place. He says, come. When will you realize it? On that day. And maybe for some of us, this is the missing link. We've never realized that God is after intimacy with us like that. And the reason we haven't uh, uh, realized it is that the day of the Spirit coming into our lives in a liberating way has not yet taken place. Or maybe you used to realize it. Maybe you had an intimacy with God that you've lost because the Holy Spirit, as we know, leaks. On that day, the day of the Spirit's coming. I need that day every day, don't you? Every single day, the Holy Spirit to come and to awaken in my spirit that I am allowed to go into that intimate, deep place with God. Not only is the gulf that has so marred creation and the chasm that has so rendered humanity impotent and the deep valley between the creator and the created been overcome. But we've been brought from the outside to the inside. We could think about this, but we haven't got time, I don't think, this morning, about the Holy Spirit bringing truth Something about the Holy Spirit bringing God's Word alive. If you struggle to read the Bible, the Holy Spirit will be your missing link. Jesus was quite clear to his disciples, if you're going to really understand this stuff, you'll need the Holy Spirit to make it real. The Holy Spirit will come and remind you and teach you of everything you need to know. Something about the Holy Spirit bringing truth to those deep places of our hearts, those areas of our hearts where we don't know forgiveness and we don't know the things that God says are true about us. The Holy Spirit wants to bring those true things to deep parts in our lives. But I'll leave you with this one. The Holy Spirit brings peace. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. People leave behind 
when they die, all their stuff, obviously. Their accumulated riches and possessions, and they get distributed as they direct. Jesus didn't leave anything like that. He had nothing to leave. But he left something of an altogether different kind. He left his peace. He says you can have a peace like the peace that the, that the world gives, if you like. Uh, let's find that verse again. You can have that kind of peace if you want it. You can have that peace. They knew all about that peace, didn't they? The Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was enforced by the sword and uh, you paid for the privilege of having uh, a Roman garrison uh, live in your province, some peace. But Jesus says there's another kind of peace, not the peace you get from the world, but a peace that he modelled because he lived really a tumultuous existence in terms of his circumstances. His privacy was constantly intruded upon. He felt drained from the demands of ministry. He was rejected by his own countrymen and his own family. He faced and felt like nobody else, the bleakness of sin and the burden of need all around him. He was so often misunderstood, so often on the receiving end of cutting criticism and unkind innuendo. If Jesus had peace for himself and peace to give away, it was an altogether different kind of peace, don't you think? given the circumstances in which he lived. And it was a peace that came out of this relationship with his father. It was a peace that came out of knowing what it was to be in that intimate place, that inner place with Father God, where he could trust in God's sovereignty, where he could be surrendered to his father's will. That's the peace for you and for me. And so Jesus said, peace be with you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. There's no one here this morning that doesn't need that kind of peace, is there? There's no one here this morning that doesn't ultimately need that relationship with God in that inner place. And there's nobody here this morning who wouldn't want, if only we could glimpse it more clearly, the total, utter joy and thrill of being completely in God's purpose, empowered by his Holy Spirit. What a difference to the kind of Christian life we so easily and so often settle for. Paul had a glimpse of it, and he said this, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So, live as children of the light. But to do that, you'll need to be filled with the Spirit. Go on being filled every day, every moment with the Holy Spirit.